Will you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 3. And we'll be looking at several verses in that chapter, so we want you to have a Bible to follow along. These guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back. So get their attention if you need one. And turn to the very beginning of your Bible, the third chapter, Genesis chapter 3. In a movie several years ago, an immigration attorney breaks out of a traffic jam and he tries to drive around it. He doesn't know where he's going and he's alarmed to note that each street seems darker and more deserted than the last one. And then a nightmare. His fancy sports car stalls. He manages to call for a tow truck, but before the tow truck arrives, five local thugs surround his car and threaten him. Just in time, the tow truck shows up and its driver, an earnest, friendly man, begins to hook up the sports car to his truck. The thugs protest because the driver's interrupting their business. So the driver takes the group leader aside and gives them a five-sentence introduction to sin. He says, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. Now that driver's summary of the human predicament is just about perfect. He understands the way things are supposed to be. The way things are supposed to be is to include friendly streets that are safe for strangers. They're supposed to include justice that fosters peace and mutual respect and goodwill and deliberate and widespread attention for the good of all. But of course, things are not that way. Not that way at all. Cornelius Plantinga, in his excellent book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, lists some of the ways that things are not as they were intended. He says, Human wrongdoing, or the threat of it, mars every adult's workday, every child's school day, and every vacationer's holiday. The news online, the news from our friends, and our own experience gives us all the examples that we need. A college man plays the field and leaves behind him a string of hookups. The women he's been with can't afterwards get him even to answer their texts. A fourth grader in a class of 25 distributes 15 party invitations and does so in a way that lets the omitted classmates clearly see that they've been excluded. Her teacher notes that but never ponders the social dynamics of that distribution scheme. A mother steps outside her marriage and she wrecks it. She leaves her children to grieve over the end of their family story. From 1989 to 2006, the British pianist Joyce Haddo put out a dazzling set of recordings of some of the most beautiful and difficult music in classical literature. She had become a prodigy at age 60. Music critics marveled that she seemed to have a different approach for each kind of music she recorded. No wonder. All of her output during that period had been stolen from CDs of other pianists and sold as her own. Now, we may not be able to relate directly to all or any of those illustrations. But please understand, friends, that every time you manipulate things 
or people to get what you want, you've committed what the Bible calls sin. Misusing what God has made for my own desires. It may be misusing my body like that college-age philanderer that Plantinga mentioned. Or it may be misusing my social power like that fourth grader. Or misusing other people's stuff like that fake classical pianist. Or it may mean misusing my tongue. The tongue that God gave me, by the way. It may be misusing my tongue in order to form words that mislead or slander or hurt. Or it may mean misusing the mind that God gave me to rehearse and nurse all of the slights real and perceived that others have caused and think about all the ways I would like to see them get theirs. Or misusing my thoughts to consider as true things that are contrary to God and what He has said in His Word. Or failing to consider what God has said in His Word at all. So whether it's physical sin or social sin or verbal sin or intellectual sin, it all amounts to misusing God's creation for the creature's ends. And after what we saw last week in Genesis chapter 3, we looked at the first seven verses. It was the very first misuse of God's creation for the human creature's desires. As a result of that now, sin comes naturally to every human being. And sin's consequences affect every human being. And these effects are given beginning in verse 8. Then... That is, after they have committed this sin. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And here are some of the saddest words in the entire Bible. And they hid from the Lord God. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we consider these divine judgments from God. 
Father, here we are gathered again on the first day of the week, Resurrection Day, the Lord's Day, to consider what you, our God, our Maker, our Savior, and our Lord, tell us. Tell us about your world, about yourself, and about ourselves and our place in it. Lord, we see from your word and in our own experience that sin has so distorted all that you have made. And so we need new lenses to see clearly. We thank you for the lens of the word of God that causes what is crooked to be made straight. Help us today then, as we look at your word, to understand it clearly and to apply it diligently to our own lives so that we may bring you glory, the purpose for which we were made. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, in your program, this week, as every week, we have inserted an outline for the message. I encourage you to take a look at that because I want to point out to you that the three major points of today's message, and today's message may well extend into next week, so if we don't get to the second or third point today, don't freak out. Lord willing, there's next week for us to continue. But I want to point out that all three of those points begin this way. At the top it says, because of sin, and then each of the three points starts with, we all experience. We all experience. Now that's because with sin having entered the world, it has effects on our experience, on our lives. But we might rightly ask why there should be any consequences for us with regard to what we looked at last week and the first sin by the first human pair. After all, we were not the ones who committed this sin of disobeying God in the Garden of Eden. So why should I and my kids be punished for something that someone else did? How is it fair to hold me responsible for what Adam did? Now bear with me as I try to explain. And in taking time to explain, as I mentioned, it may well be that we won't finish all that's in the outline for today. If not, we'll just pick up next week. Now, for this explanation, I acknowledge my indebtedness to R.C. Sproul and his treatment of this topic in his excellent book, Chosen by God. Chosen by God. The reason that we suffer the consequences of Adam's sin is this. It's because the Bible teaches that Adam served as our representative, the representative of the entire human race. With the test that God set before Adam and Eve, he was testing the whole of humanity. Even Adam's name, as we saw a few weeks ago, means man or mankind. And so Adam stands at the head of the human race. He was placed in the garden to act not only for himself, but for all of his future descendants. So just as a federal government has a chief spokesman who's the head of that nation, so Adam was the federal head of humanity. So this view of Adam as our representative is sometimes called the federal headship view or federalism. Now the chief idea of federalism is that when Adam sinned, he sinned for all of us. His fall was our fault. When God punished Adam by taking away Adam's original righteousness, we were all likewise punished. The curse of the fall affects all of us. Not only was Adam destined to make his living by the sweat of his brow, but that's true for us now as well. 
Not only was Eve consigned to have pain in childbirth, but that's been true for women in all human generations. That offending serpent in the garden was not the only member of his species who was cursed to crawl on his belly. All of them were. And so there were other consequences as well, besides our work and pain in childbirth and for the serpent. You'll remember that when Adam and Eve were created, they were given dominion over the entire of creation. So as a result of their sin, the whole world suffered. In fact, here's what the Bible says. The creation was subjected as a result of sin to frustration. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. That would be God. Cursing the ground and the environment, the creation. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. That's saying that as we read in Genesis chapter 3, the environment, the creation, the ground has been affected by the entrance of sin into God's, God's world. And there is a time coming when it too will be redeemed. It too, like we, will be made new if we know Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to say this, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The whole creation groans as it awaits the full redemption of humanity. So when man sinned, the effects of that sin were felt throughout the whole range of the responsibility that God had given to the first man and first woman. Because of Adam's sin, not only do we suffer, but lions and elephants and butterflies and puppy dogs, they all suffer. They didn't ask for that suffering, but they were all hurt by the fall of their master. Now, the fact that all sin and suffering is the result of Adam's sin is explicitly taught in the Bible. Romans chapter 5. It says, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. That chapter goes on to say, many died by the trespass of the one man. It goes on again. One trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. And then yet again, that same chapter, through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So there's no way for us to avoid the obvious teaching of Scripture that Adam's sin had terrible consequences for all of his descendants. But that leaves us with a big question, a question that probably many of you are asking. If God did, in fact, judge the entire human race in Adam, how is that fair? How are we all living in this mess because of that guy? And I joked last week that, you know, the first person I want to have a word with in heaven, you know, is Adam. But I'm only joking. Because as we're going to see, Adam represented me. And Adam represented you, but how is that fair? Because it seems unjust of God to not to allow not only all subsequent human beings, but all of creation to suffer because of Adam. Well, the federal headship view, which I am convinced is the biblical view of Adam's representation of us, assumes that we were in fact represented by Adam and that the representation that Adam made was both fair and accurate. In fact, it holds that Adam 
perfectly represented us. Adam perfectly represented you and me. Now, within our own legal system, we have situations like that. Not a perfect analogy, but approximately parallel to this concept of Adam's representation. We know that if I hire a man to kill someone and that hired gunman carries out the contract, then I can justly be tried for first-degree murder in spite of the fact that I didn't actually pull the trigger. I'm judged to be guilty for a crime someone else committed because the other person acted in my place. Now you say, okay, fine. But the truth is, we did not hire Adam to sin on our behalf. So even though the hitman illustration does show that at least in some cases it's right to punish one person for the crime of another, it's still true we did not choose Adam to represent us. And just like one of the major reasons for the American Revolution was their protest that there should be no taxation without representation, we all say, hey, there can't be any damnation without representation either. No damnation without representation, we say. And that should be representation that we choose, not somebody else. We want the right to choose our own representative. We want to be able to cast our own vote, not have somebody else cast that vote for us. Now, that word vote comes from a Latin word, votum, which means wish or choice. When we cast our vote, we're expressing our wishes, setting forth our wills for someone else to carry out. But suppose we would have had the total freedom to vote for our representative in Eden. Just think about that. Would that have satisfied you? Okay, I voted for you. You messed up. And now it's falling on me just like it's falling on, falling on you. And why do we want the right to vote for our representative? Why do we object if the king or any other person in authority wants to appoint our representatives for us? Well, the obvious reason is this. We want to be sure that if someone's going to represent us, that our will is being carried out. If the king appoints my representative, then I'm going to have little confidence that my wishes will be accomplished. I would fear that the appointed representative would be more eager to carry out the wishes of the king than mine. I would not feel fairly represented. But please hear this, friends. Even if we have the right to choose our own representatives, we still have no guarantee that our wishes will be carried out. Who among us has not been enticed by a smooth-talking politician who promised if you vote for him, this is the way it will go? We cast our vote, and then it turned out a different way. The reason we want to select our own representative is so that we can be sure we're accurately represented. But that never is a promise or a guarantee to us. And please understand, please understand this. At no time in all of human history have we been more accurately represented than we were in the Garden of Eden. Now, to be sure, we did not choose Adam to be our representative. He was chosen for us. But the one who chose him to represent us was not a tyrant named King George who taxed without representation. The one who chose Adam to represent us was Almighty God. And when God chooses our representative, he does that absolutely perfectly. God's choice is an infallible choice. 
When I choose my representatives, I do it fallibly. Sometimes I select the wrong person and I'm in, or I'm inaccurately represented by that person. Adam represented me infallibly. Not because Adam was infallible, obviously, but because God is infallible. And given God's infallibility, I can't argue that Adam was a poor choice to represent me. The, the assumption that many of us make as we struggle with this fall and the entrance of sin into God's world is that had we been there, we would have made a different choice. We would not have made the decision to plunge the world into ruin. But friends, such an assumption is just not possible given the character of God. God does not make mistakes. His choice of my representative is greater than my choice of my own. Let me say that again. His choice of my representative is greater than my choice of my own representative. God knows more about the representative, more about me, all about the circumstances such that he can omnisciently make a choice that I cannot. And even if we grant that indeed we were perfectly, though, represented by Adam, many of you are still understandably asking if it's fair to be represented at all when the stakes are so very high. I mean, why did God go through this representation process? Well, the best answer to that is by asking another question, one that's actually asked in the Bible. Is there unrighteousness with God? And the Bible's answer to that rhetorical question is as plain as it is emphatic. God forbid that there would be any unrighteousness with God. And so when we complain that Adam was not the right representative, we're actually reflecting an accusation on the character of God. And if we know anything at all about the character of God, then we know that he's not a tyrant and we know that he is never unjust. His structure of the terms of mankind's probation satisfied God's own righteous character. And that should be enough to satisfy us. But it's not, is it? We still quarrel. We contend with God. We assume that somehow God did us wrong and that we suffer as innocent victims of God's judgment. Please hear, friends, such statements and sentiments only confirm the radical degree of our sinfulness. When we think like this, we're thinking like Adam's children. Such blasphemous thoughts only underline in red how accurately, in fact, we were represented by Adam. And consider further. If it's never possible for one person to be punished for the sins of another. If it's never right, it's never fair, it's never possible for one person to be punished for the sins of another. Then we have no savior. Because Jesus was punished for our sins. And in fact, most of you know, that's the very essence of the good news of the gospel. Not only was Jesus punished for our sins, but his righteousness, not ours, is the basis of our justification. We are justified by what some theologians call an alien righteousness, a righteousness that's not our own. And if we press our view of no damnation without representation too far, then we're left as sinners who must justify themselves. And that puts us all in a very hopeless place. Think about it. We don't mind an exception to our demand for fairness 
when it comes to the cross, do we? It's the fall that really gets us. We don't mind having our guilt transferred to Jesus, even though Jesus committed no sin. And have Jesus punished for our sin, we don't mind that. Or we don't mind having His righteousness transferred to us. It's having the guilt of Adam transferred to us that makes us protest. But you cannot have the one without the other. And that's why Romans 5 goes on to say this. Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So if you're going to take Jesus, you got to take Adam too. And they perfectly represented us. Adam did what we would have done. And Jesus did what we should have done. And so that's why I say in your outline, because of sin, we all experience several things. The first is this. We all experience division. We all experience division or separation. And we experience that separation, that division in several areas. I have four of them listed for you. The first is this, that sin divides us from God. Sin divides us, separates us from God. Verse 8, again. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now that verse is written in such a way as to suggest that this was a practice that happened frequently. In fact, some commentators say that there's reason to believe that this was a daily event. That in the afternoon, mid-afternoon, toward evening, in the cool of the day, that God would come and commune with the first man and the first woman. And that's how they were able to hear the sound of the Lord God coming. Because it was something that they had heard before and that they had apparently heard frequently. So they are made to have this communion with God. And in fact, they have communion with God on a regular basis. So much so that it's a familiar sound to them. What a marvelous situation Adam and Eve, our first parents, are in then. They're in a perfect environment. They're made by a perfectly good God. He has given them all things to enjoy. He has given them but one prohibition. They have fellowship directly, communion directly with God on a regular basis. And when it says in verse number 8 that they heard the sound of the Lord, that word that's translated sound is the same word for voice. You could actually translate that. They heard the voice of the Lord God. And then when it says they heard him as he was walking, that word for walking is literally going forth. So you could translate that verse this way. Then the man and his wife heard the voice of the Lord God as he was going, as, excuse me, the, the voice of the Lord God going forth in the garden in the cool of the day. So whether or not this was a pre-incarnate, sorry for the big word, 
but pre, prior to the incarnation, prior to the time God became flesh in Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, there are pre-incarnate in the first part of your Bible manifestations of God taking on a human form temporarily. And so that's certainly a possibility here, that God did that and he was physically then walking. But it's also possible, and my own view is, that what they actually heard was the sound of God's voice going forth in the garden on a regular basis. Now, part of the reason that I believe that is because that man was made, and whether I'm right about that or not, doesn't change what I'm going to say here. Man was made to know the voice of his creator. The moment that God spoke to Adam and Eve in chapter 1 and verse 28, and you have this kind of cadence in creation on the first five days of creation, it says, and God said, let there be, and there was, and God said, let there be, and the evening and morning were that next day. But then it's only when you come to day six and the Creation of humanity, God's crowning achievement of creation week, made in the image of God, that verse number 28 changes the cadence. And it doesn't just say, and God said, verse 28 of chapter 1 says, and God said to them. Directly to them. Now, why? Because God made them to know his voice. They didn't have to look for any credentials for this one who made them. They intuitively knew his voice. They were made to know the voice of their God. And then when you come to chapter 2 and verse 15, and God commands them with regard to their duties, their purpose for which he made them, they are able to hear that command, understand that command, and to set out to obey that command. The first man and woman immediately knew the voice of God to indeed be his voice. And yet now, because of sin, men run from the word of their maker. They heard the voice of the Lord God in the garden, and they ran. And Adam and Eve's children have been running ever since. Running from the voice of their maker, the voice that they were made to know. And so that means, among other things, friends, that what I call practical atheism began in the garden. Practical atheism. Now, that's to be distinguished from philosophical atheism. In order to be a philosophical atheist, one has to maintain that there's no God. And in order to do that, you have to suppress the evidence all around you, and that's what the Bible, in fact, says unbelievers do. And so, as a result, Romans 1 says this, Although we knew God, we neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. So the Bible's label for one who claims no God to be a philosophical atheist is that person is a fool. Now, why? Not because they're dumb, not because they're stupid, not because they're ignorant, not because they don't have information. It's precisely because they do have overwhelming information that they fail to apply that God says this person is a fool. This failure, though, To acknowledge God is not only a failure of the philosophical atheist, but, as I said, what I call the practical atheist. That is, someone who believes in God, says he or she believes in God, but in practice, God is really irrelevant. It's a failure to consciously and intentionally glorify God and acknowledge Him as the source of every good and perfect gift. That's what I mean by practical 
atheism. The man who was made to commune and have fellowship with God is now divided from God, is now separated from God. Practical atheism atheism then begins here. And you and I, at times, each of us, play the role of practical atheist. We were made to interact with the Lord our God every moment of every day. Every moment of every day. Every breath comes from your God. Every thought is to be used for the glory of your God. Every word is to be formed on your tongue in order to advance the cause of the glory of God. Every circumstance that God allows into your life, God allows into your life for the purpose for which He placed us here. But, oh friends, how quickly do we forget in the practice of our lives that I'm supposed to think God's thoughts after Him. I'm supposed to speak words that are consistent with words that He would speak. Perform actions that are only consistent with what He would do. And to face circumstances, understanding that this situation is in the control of the God who made me, made this world, and designed that circumstance. But how many times do we play the practical atheist when we worry... And we fret as if God's irrelevant. And that's what began back in the garden. So much so that sin's tendency is this. We don't think about God. And prior to coming to Christ, we don't want to think about God. Romans 1 again says this. We did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. To retain thinking about God. And every other division, every other separation, we're going to see three more. But every one of those flow from this first one. Every other separation that sin has caused all flow from this chief division, this chief separation. Man, humanity, who's made for communion with God, having been separated from Him. Our relationship with God is primary. We're interacting with God every moment of every day. And we live before the face of God, quorum Deo, whether we acknowledge it or not. Sin divides us from God. Secondly, sin divides us from ourselves. Sin divides us from ourselves. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now let me just stop there. You think God knows? So God says, where are you? And God is now smoking Adam out. He's flushing him out of hiding. He certainly knows precisely where he is. And he knows precisely why he's hiding. But he's going to have Adam see the problem that Adam has created. The Lord God called to the man. And let me just point out in passing. Notice that when God comes after this sin. The chief human player of which was the woman. You'll remember. But who does God call for? God calls to the man. Why? Because as I pointed out last week, Adam was supposed to be 
in control of this situation. Adam was supposed to be leading his home. Instead, he was a passive bystander. And verse number six tells us that after the woman finished this dialogue with the serpent, she gave some of the fruit to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And there's no word recorded in Holy Scripture that Adam spoke in that entire episode. And Adam answered in verse 10, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Adam, now aware of evil. He's now aware of evil. He was innocent of evil prior to disobeying God. But God had promised in that day you will know good and evil. Now he knows Not only good, he knows good and evil. And now being aware of evil, having eaten the fruit and recognizing that he's committed evil. Adam undoubtedly, he's got to be thinking to himself. Now you just try to place yourself in Adam's shoes. I've sinned against God. It's that time of day for the Lord God, as he normally does, to come and commune with us. We were made by God for that. God has been so very, very good to us, giving all of these lavish surroundings. Giving us very clear commands about why we are here. A good God has given this all to us, and now we have disobeyed him. What do I do now? Adam's got to be thinking. I can't let him know what happened. (laughs) This is why I say sin separates us from ourselves. It just really makes us stupid. Just to be blunt. I can't let God find out what happened. And besides that, it was that woman anyway. But I know he's going to come after me. Why do I get the blame? Anyway, he's not going to be able to see me behind this bush. Sin makes us foolish. Makes fools of us. I heard an illustration several years ago at a conference at which one of the speakers was Ed Welch. Some of you have read some of his books. We have some of them in our resource center, but he is a a biblical counselor. He has a book on depression. He has a good book on addictions. He has a book called uh, Blame It on the Brain, about how the brain interacts with the spirit. Uh, All of these are excellent books by Ed Welch. But I heard him speak one time, and he told a story of how we think and how sin causes us to think in divided ways in our own minds. And he said when he was a kid in high school, he was painfully shy. And yet he, by his own words, was a nerd and he he was a bookworm and he got very good grades. And so at the end of his 10th grade year and his 11th grade year, when they had assembly at the end of the year, he got some academic awards, which meant he had to go up front in front of a couple of thousand people. And as this painfully shy kid, he hated to be up in front of people. So as his senior year assembly approached, he was hoping, I'm not going to, I hope I don't get the award. I hope somebody else gets this award. And he's sitting there in his seat as it comes to time for the academic award. And he's hoping that he doesn't get it. And they're describing this person and their achievements. And sure enough, he he knows it's going to be him. And so when they get ready to give the name, he's partly out of his seat. And when they do, they give somebody else's name. So his prayers have been answered. This painfully shy kid doesn't have to get up in front of everyone. And he says he sat down and he was relieved for a moment, but only for a moment. Because then he thought, well, wait a minute, why did they get it? I'm better than they are. I should have gotten that. 
And you see, that's the kind of thing that happens in our minds now as a result of sin. We are divided even against ourselves internally, thinking defensively about what people might do to us or ruminating about what they did do to us. We think in terms of self-preservation now in our interactions with other people with whom we were made to serve the Lord God, but now from whom, as we will see, we are estranged. That's why the Bible says this. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then it goes on to say, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. In Romans chapter 12, we are taught that this transformation is seated in the renewal of our our minds. And then as a first example of how that's to take place, that renewing of the mind, verse 3 in Romans 12 says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. So we are divided from ourselves in the inner recesses of our thinking. And I will talk more about that in our second hour in the series that we've been doing for the last few weeks called Mind Games. And if you can hang around for that, I would encourage you to do so. Sin divides us from God, from ourselves, and from others. From others. Sin divides us, separates us from others. Verse 11. And God said to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And of course, God knows. And then notice the man's response in verse 12. The first words out of his mouth... Here here are the words that should have come out of his mouth. Question, Adam. Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat from? And the answer should be yes. But the answer is not yes. The answer is the same kind of answer your kid always gives you. And that's because your kid is organically related to you. And you did that when you were a kid, and you continue to do that, as I do. So some people's kids, you know, and some people's kids actually turn out to be all Adam's kids, and we all act like this, and the first words are the woman and you. The woman, so he blame shifts and points at the woman... But worse yet, he not only does not take responsibility, but rather points at the woman, but ultimately points at God, because this is the woman that you gave me. So now this good God, giving them this paradise garden to serve in, lavishing them with the fruit of all of the trees in in the garden, except this one, now he has sinned, now he's hiding from God, now this communion that he enjoyed with God is severed, separated, now divided from God, and now it goes a step further. He makes an accusation against God. You made the world, and apparently you made a defective model when you made her. You would think... You've only made one, and you got it wrong. That's what Adam is, in effect, saying to God. It's the woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and then finally, at the end of the sentence, we get to the truth, and I ate it. 
But only after all of the excuses. Now, here's what happens. Sin divides us from others. We blame shift, but others become tools now. Others become tools to get what I want. Remember that sin is misusing what God has made in order to get what I want rather than achieve God's ends with what he has made. Now others become tools in the hands of sinful humanity to get what we want. And this view of others as tools to get what we want affects how I view and how I talk about them. That's why the Bible has to warn us about our interactions with others. Philippians chapter 2 says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. But in the garden, you didn't have to have that. But now after sin, we most certainly do. Much more to say about that, and I cannot. I'll let you fill in the last blank under point one. Sin not only divides us from God and ourselves and others, but sin divides us from our world. Sin divides us from our world. Now, I will elaborate on the third one next week. Sin divides us from others. And on this fourth point that sin divides us from our world next next week. But for now, I want to come back in, in closing to the fact that our sin in Adam not only gives us Adam's guilt. Now, when I say guilt, I don't mean feeling guilty. It may include that, but you may have a conscience or someone may have a conscience that's seared and they don't feel guilty at all. But that doesn't change the fact that they are guilty. The guilt we have in Adam is objective guilt. It's condemnation before God. But it not only results in that condemnation, that guilt, but also a new sin nature. And that raises this question in closing. How can we ever then please God? How can I please God? How can you please God? If I come into this world from the moment of conception with a sin nature passed on to me from my parents who got it from their parents who got it from Adam then how can I ever please God? And here's the Bible's answer to that. You can't. But here's the Bible's good news, gospel answer to that. Jesus did. And that's why when when God the Father looked at Jesus when he walked the earth 2,000 years ago and he said, this is my son, do you remember, in whom I am well pleased. And God showed his pleasure, his absolute pleasure with all that Jesus did in obeying perfectly God's law where we have all failed because of sin. God showed that he was pleased with that by raising Jesus from the dead. That was accrediting then everything that Jesus had done up to that time. In all of his life, every word he spoke, every act he committed, in his death on the cross... And then God the Father raised him from the dead, accrediting, approving that everything that Jesus did had been accepted because it was pleasing to God the Father. Here's the good news, the gospel for you and me. Sinners like us who come into the world separated from God, in our thinking psychologically separated from ourselves, it affects our relationships separated from others. We're separated from our environment. We come into the world like that. But God the Son, Jesus Christ, has come to redeem what has been made wrong by the entrance of sin into God's world. 
And that, through him, is how you are reunited to God. And only through him. And so we invite you at the end of this service to have the sin problem taken care of. Not by anything you can do. You can't please God. But Jesus has perfectly pleased God the Father. Now how do I do that? You acknowledge, you recognize that you are a sinner. Realizing you're a sinner, recognize that Christ died for your sin. And that death was acceptable to God because of the perfect life that preceded it. And you repent of your sin. You don't just say, hey, I know a good deal when I see it. Let me have some of that Jesus stuff. Uh Uh-uh. You say, Jesus, I thank you for the payment you made for my sin. And now, because of you giving your life, I'm giving my life to you. You repent. You're going to follow God. You're going to go his way and not your way. You receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow and pray. And when we do that, if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, now's your opportunity to do that. From your heart to God, in your own words, acknowledge your sin, that Jesus is the only means of the forgiveness of your sin by his death on the cross. And then give your life to him. Lord, I want to follow you with my, with my life. The Bible promises this. He or she that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for this time to open your word and to there see ourselves and the root, the ultimate root of our problems. We thank you, Lord, that your word, though it very early on tells us about the root of our problems, it goes on for hundreds of chapters and another 65 books in your word to tell us how you have worked out the solution through Jesus Christ. Thank you for God the Son who came to do what we could not do for ourselves. Thank you for his perfect life of righteousness. Thank you for his substitutionary death on the cross. And thank you that both of those are applied to us when we come to him believing that he's who he's claimed to be, God in the flesh. And that he did what the Bible says he did. We thank you then for the redemption the salvation, the deliverance, the rescue that comes to us when we become united with Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are then reunited with the God who made us, the one from whom sin separated us. We thank you that we can begin to think straight because we now see straight, because we believe your word and your word gives us the lenses through which to see ourselves and others in our world. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move on the hearts of some in this room to draw them out of the world and to yourself. And we will give you the glory for all you accomplish. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.